Have you ever looked back over your life and thought, you know, he was really running after me? I, I mean, as, as I tell my testimony, as I, I think I've said this before, early days, I was kind of like, well, I was doing my due diligence, you know, and I was really thinking this through, and I was, and then I looked back, and I was going, he was running after me. I wasn't running after him. He was, I mean, he put so many things in my road, so many people in my road, so many uh, thoughts that I would have, the spirit, and that's exactly what Jesus had told as disciples was going to be the case, I'm going to send the Spirit into the world, and He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the Holy Spirit does His work, but he, because we can't see the Holy Spirit, we sometimes think these collective thoughts that began to emerge in my mind to even think about God came from me. Well, yes and no, but mostly no. Mostly it was Him running after me. And we're going to get a little bit of that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is invigorating. It's life-giving. It changes not only our destiny here on earth, but Lord, our destiny for all of eternity. We are eternal living beings. We have soul. We, we, now we have a spirit that's life-giving for those who know you. Lord, we thank you for that. We need your help this morning. This is an awfully well-known verse, even people in the secular world sometimes quote these kinds of parables, and yet, Lord, can we, will you allow us to go deeper, to get a deeper touch and a deeper taste of this staggering metaphors that you use for lost things? In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever lost something that you just was, you were plucking out your hairs? I mean, it was like a splinter in your mind. You knew where you left it. You came back five minutes later, and it had just vanished. Maybe it was something as simple as a key fob. Maybe it was something a little more complex, like uh, you know, maybe a wallet. I remember losing a wallet. I I, I was actually it was I was very I was in college. I did not have two dollars to rub together, but I actually had for I don't know, it was the beginning of the month. I had a little money in my wallet. And I left it in the bathroom, and I, and I got back to my seat, and I, oh, my gosh, and I went running back, and it was gone, and I, and I never, did, never did find it again. Uh, we all have those experiences. Uh, even recently, I was reading about this, uh, the tragedy of Hurricane Ian, and I don't know if you saw, it was kind of a, it became kind of an international story, but a woman, they had been searching for her wedding ring for days and days, and finally she just gave up. And, and you women can speak to this, you know, losing your wedding ring has to be one of those moments that you just, you don't know what to do. And, and uh, not just that, that it can't be replaced, but the meaning of it. You had that ring, you were given that ring, and now it's gone. And, and the hurricane blows through, and then they were cleaning up after the hurricane, 150-mile-an-hour ones that were cleaning up after the hur hurricane, and they actually found it in cleaning up after the hurricane. And so, uh, well, maybe the Lord had a purpose for his winds. He even has control over the winds, you know. So um, it's, it's an easy thing to understand, but for those of you who have lost something and then found something, in fact, bring up that picture. Do you see this? This was a wedding ring. This actually occurred. So there was a woman, and she was digging in her garden, and she somehow her ring slipped off. And they went back and dug up the soil and dug and dug and looked for years. Thirteen years later, I guess it was just in the soil, and they planted a seed and it had gone down, this carrot, you know, and they pulled the carrot up out, and that was what they found. Thirteen years later. 
Now, what kind of, what, what emotions would she have felt? I mean, I'd just be staggered, be bizarre. I mean, I would just be, I was just overwhelmed with how odd life can be. But I have to imagine that she was thrilled beyond belief. And that emotion is a little bit what we're going to talk about this morning. I want you to go to Luke chapter 15. We have now moved from chapter 14 into 15. And we're going to read verse 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and not only that, he eats with them. Now, that may not mean as much to you in our current day and hour, but to eat with somebody was a place of, I accept you, I bring you. It's much more familial it was much more involved, the, the eating, the purpose behind eating, the ceremony of eating and all that. It was really saying, you know, I accept you. You're part of my family. And if you've ever been to the Middle East, uh, there are times, uh, even in the, I remember eating in the West Bank, and some of you may have been with me and eating in the West Bank there in, uh, right there in the Middle East. And uh, there was some beautiful Palestinian folks, and they, they came, and they were just, I mean, it was overwhelming. I mean, they were at a big busload, so they were happy that we were going to spend that much money with them. But brought about 100 people in, and, and boy, they were just, but the, 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 just the, the beauty of a meal and the significance of it, a little bit different than our fast food, drive-through kind of mentality that sometimes we have here in the West. But it was a big deal. And then they weren't so much upset with Jesus um, that he was eating with them. Obviously, they believed that they, the sinners could repent, it was that how would he lower himself as a, ostensibly an acclaimed rabbi in their minds? Of course, they were grumbling. Can you imagine what that would sound like? Just a grumble, grumble, grumble. Who does he think he is? What does he think he's eating with these? How does he eat with these unclean, unholy outcasts? What's going on? And you see that throughout the scriptures. In fact, I can't imagine the millions of people that have read these parables through the years and said, well, maybe he can accept me too. I would identify more with that side of the crowd than I would with the Pharisees. Listen to what in his, in his beautiful book entitled Jesus. I'm going to write a book one day just say the title is Jesus, but it's Richard Bauckham. He says this, talking about this very scene of him hanging out with the outcasts. He said, but Jesus this really profoundly impacted me when I had read this once. It said, Jesus did not wait for such people to repent before sharing meals with them. Let me say that again. Now, you would say, oh, yes, I know, that's kind of what the Bible teaches. But is that your practice? You know, I have to ask, is that my practice? Jesus did not wait for such people to repent before sharing meals with them. This is what distinguished his practice from Jewish leaders who would not have denied that people like tax collectors could repent and obtain forgiveness from God. To put it simply, Jesus did not keep his distance from anyone who needed the love of God. Whether they'd need liberation from demons or healing of sickness or forgiveness of sin, this was his mission. It left him no room for protecting himself, however, from being contaminated by the impurity or immorality of others. And what that means is that you can't really truly be contaminated, but according to their practices, and again, as we discussed a few weeks ago, the Mishnah and the, the writings upon the writings upon the writings and their, their views, and they used to create what we'd call fences. You know, here's what the law says, here's the Mosaic law. 
and we'll go out, we'll make it even more difficult, and we'll go way out here and we'll build fences. So, so if, you, if you actually just get a little through the fence, you won't get to actually breaking the law. But it became tradition, it became their source of power and, and all those other things. He said, the, while the Pharisees turned ordinary meals into a practice of ritual holiness, See, that's what they saw. It was a ceremonial ritual of holiness. Jesus turned ordinary meals into a practice of the coming of God's kingdom. Now, remember last week when we talked about Isaiah chapter 25, and we talked about this incredible banquet that was going to occur one day? And Isaiah, again, 700 years before the time of Jesus, is looking forward, and he's seen this amazing banquet that all peoples, all nations were going to enjoy. And, and again... Uh, fine wine and all those kinds of things. We alluded to that last week. In Jesus' practice of meal fellowship, he, so to speak, goes ahead with the love of God to welcome to the banquet everyone who will accept the invitation. Eating with Jesus was virtually tantamount to entering the kingdom and sitting at the table with the patriarchs. That's what it was like to eat with Jesus. Would you enjoy eating, having a meal with Jesus? I guess that depends on how, what you think about him, how you, how you view him. Is he uh, holier than thou, or is he, or is he loving and compassionate? Is he, as C.C. Wine said, running after you? Is Jesus running after you? Is he running away from you? Or is he indignant toward you? And this, out of this scenario, out of that as a backdrop, Jesus now begins, he's going to tell three parables, the lost parables. Two of them we're going to address this morning. Next week, we're going to look at the prodigal son. Now, everybody uses the term, the prodigal son. They may not even know where it came from. They may not know what it means. They may not, but everybody, just collectively, people just in secular society talk about the prodigal and sometimes even talk about a lost sheep or something like that. Where did that come from? Where did that language come from? And what does that tell us? About God. What's very important for you to understand is that parabolic teaching, coming alongside, giving a, a metaphor or a, some kind of analogy, giving a picture of the way things operate, are easily broken down. You can break them down into this means that, and he had a robe, and she had a coin, and the coin represents this, and all those kinds of things. And that's not necessarily what we're trying to get after. What I would, what I think Jesus wants to convey to us in his parabolic teaching is this. He wants to leave you with an emotion, an attitude, and a concept when he tells the parable. Not just religious technicalities. We know that that's true. We're most motivated by that, aren't we? After we see a movie, we go, well, you know, I love the, you know, it's fine to break it down like they would at the Oscars. This is the cinematography, and this is the screen actors, and this is, this is the best supporting actor. This is, you know, it's fine to do all that, but in the end, the movies we love is, is, is what leaves us with an emotional reaction, a visceral reaction. Forrest Gump does that for me. Sound of Music may do that for you, you know, but those, those moments where you're just you, just, you can relive the emotion that exists, that's what we want to grab from these parables, not just religious technicalities, this means this, like systematic theology. This is a time and a place for that. It's very important to understand God's way of salvation. But right here, we just I want you to walk away with a feeling, the feeling that God has, has either had toward you, has towards you now, 
or you need to understand that these emotions come, come from God. So, verse 3. So he told them a parable. And it's what he said. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. I've done that before, and you have too. Sometimes you just finally, until he finds it, and you just give up. You just go, I just can't find it. I'm just never going to find it. This happened with Tess not long ago. We'd just gotten her, her little iPhone. We didn't get her the newest one, but got her one, and she was so excited. This is her iPhone, and you know, this was... This is maybe three or four years ago. And uh, rose-colored gold and all the you know, little, little nuances that she had. And she just had it. She bought a little special case for it and everything. And we were not one week into it, and it was gone. <laughs> and she was beyond despair. Beyond despair, as you can imagine. Did she ever find it? Well, we, she went without a phone for quite some time, and then I said, honey, that's just the way it's going to be, and I mean, it was, your, it was in your possession, and finally, I just felt so much sorrow for her that we went out, and we found an old, we found a used one, an old one, that, or I think somebody may have even given it to her, and, which wasn't nice. It was all scratched up and everything else, and so she lost it. I mean, she's just like, until I found, there was a time where she's just like, okay, I have to give up now. And paradoxically, about three, four years later, we found it. It was in a bag just as fresh and new and clean. And, of course, now it's iPhone 7, and now they're on iPhone 86, you know, or whatever it is. But she found it. It was in an old bag that she didn't even remember taking. It got stuffed in the back of a closet, and it was wedged down in there. But when we found it, it was a moment of just, again, celebration. But the point here is that normally when we're looking for something, we give up on it, and God does not give up until we breathe our last. And then he has, and then that moment is gone. You say, well, you're just, that's, uh, it's, I don't know, are you, what kind of language are you using here? It seems a little manipulative, Jeff. No, your life to embrace Jesus is now. It's now. Today is the day. Repentance. And when he comes home, what happens? Well, he finds it and he lays it on his shoulder. And then verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. And he says, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep, which was lost. And I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, please understand, he is giving strong medicine. He is speaking primarily, primarily in response to their grumbling. This is strong medicine, whether they're aware of it or not. God's much more enthralled, but because Jesus knows something. First of all, he knows that there are no righteous people. Paul tells that in Romans 3. For there is no one who is righteous, not even one. But so please understand, he is using a rhetorical device in both this and the next parable it's hyperbolic. It's a hyperbolic rhetorical device. He is using, would that be the case? Would every shepherd who's out leave his 99 sheep among the wolves and, every, and all the bears and everything else that could potentially attack them and leave them? And, and it may take five days to find this and leave the 99 and risk the 99. No, that's not even the point of the story. That's not the point of the story. Would he really call after a day of shepherding and come home and have lost the sheep 
found it, called all of his friends, got everybody at the house. I found my sheep. I found my... Probably not. That's not the point of the story. This is a literary device that Jesus is using as strong medicine to elicit in two people groups, both the sinners that he's eating with, that they are loved and God is after them, and also the, those that perceive themselves to be righteous, to be okay with God. And he's showing them, but he wants everybody to walk away. And again, that song, he is running after you. He's running after you. I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus, whether you're watching, whether you're here, here with us. I mean, are you lost or have you lost your way? It's something you have to understand. Even say you gave your life to Jesus 20 years ago, and yet you feel like you have just gone, you have gone wayward. You've gone a million miles from God's plans for your life. Or maybe you've never really felt like you entered into the plans that God has for your life. The relationship, people talk about relationship, and you're, you're here today, or you're watching, and you're just thinking, you know, I don't know, this relationship thing. It's kind of, I always feel arm's length. God cares about you, and it's in that reconnection between you and his spirit, well, that life comes, but he's running after you. Well, then the second parable, the lost coin, verse uh, 11, I believe it is, or 8. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins, 10 silver coins. Now, why would that be 10 silver coins? I need to give you just a little bit of a backdrop. I think most scholars agree. This would have been akin to maybe a dowry or a wedding ring for a woman. She would wear this often around her neck, and she would have 10 different coins. It was kind of a net worth kind of a thing too. It was not that it was just valuable. It also gave a picture of her being married and all these kinds of things. So when she had 10 coins, it wasn't just I have 10 coins and a tin can under the sink. It was I have these 10 coins that are around me and representative of my marriage with my husband and all these other kind of things. And this is just a picture of this. And then one slips off and falls. So please understand it was more than just I have 10 and I lost 10%. I mean, some of you are feeling like I've lost a lot more than that lately in the markets, you know. I mean, 10%. I love if I only lost 10%. I'd be rejoicing, not sweeping the house clean. 10% seems not too bad. But please understand the backdrop to that. And she loses one coin. And does she not light a lamp and sweep the house? Is it just that she's trying to clean up a little bit? No, they had dirt floors. I mean, things could, could fall on the ground and just kind of become part of the floor in some senses. And so she was sweeping the house and searching carefully uh, again until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. I found the coin which I'd lost. In the same way, this is important, in the same way, the exact same emotion that I am outlining in this story, in the same way, God has the same emotions that she has, and he's given them a picture. That's how he feels. It's not like, all right, well, it's about time. It's about time that Bob finally came to his senses. I'm so sick of him not serving me or coming to church or, you know, whatever. I'm so sick of it. I just, it's about time. Now get over there and you stay in the corner, you sheep. Is that how God feels? Or does he... Was he drop everything, call his friends? This is, this is the picture. 
What emotion do you take from that? Can you accept that? Are you able to, to really try to qualify that in your mind and say, I'm a, I could be a lost sheep or a lost coin? I could be in this picture and he would feel that about me? Or have you never really felt that about how, have you never really felt the weightiness of this teaching of Jesus about how God feels about you coming home? Well, you know, I kind of did a deal and I went to a religious thing and I said, I don't want to go to heaven. I I mean, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven, but I've never. No, get beyond that. The emotion of God towards lost people. Take it as a concept, as an emotion. What are we going to do with that? Well, we're going to look at the four kind of four-step process that I, some things that I think that we can learn from this. But before we do, I think it's important, especially this first parable with the sheep. Now, I've taught a lot about this. Some of you will have heard the teaching on the shepherd, but I think it's very important because in going back, maybe you're new to the Bible and you don't know anything about it, but let me just, allow me to say there's, there's something called the Old Testament. Jewish people call it the Tanakh or the Old Testament. And it's, it's the first uh, books in the Bible, and it gives all the way, and then there's about a 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then Jesus emerges. Jesus predicates his entire ministry on what the prophets had seen. In fact, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, they're saying, I don't know what happened. How could you be so slow not to understand all the prophets have been writing? Didn't you realize he had to fulfill it in this way? In other words... And this is very compelling, please. And, and again, I say this all the time, uh, and I hate to repeat myself to some of you, but some of you are, that are new, you have to understand there's no scholarly debate on the first part of this book. It's still hold, held in great respect and honor among many Jewish people. But the question is, this is writing in advance about someone who's going to come in the future, some messianic figure who's going to help, and, and through this help, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through this messianic figure, and he comes in many forms. And one of those forms, and it is very important for you to understand, is a shepherdly figure. It's very hard to put this together. I can't imagine what they would have thought because they would read the prophets, and in some ways you'd read Isaiah 52 and 53, and it seems like, wow, this is a very important person, but he's dying, and he's being you know, brutally crucified even pierced, even before crucifixion was a thing, they were talking about him being pierced. And, and yet over here, it seems like he's going to be triumphant and a king in the line of David. Which is it? And how does this work? And then a shepherdly picture and then a, a stick picture and then bread and all. I just don't understand all this. They couldn't have understand it except through the optics of the New Testament. And we're going to see that. I want to go back, if you don't mind, to Ezekiel chapter 34. This is going to be, for some of you, a little laborious, but I'm going to do everything I can not to make it laborious. It's exciting. It's it's thrilling. If you understand what's going on here, I'm not just reading from the Bible. I'm reading from something that was written 600, a little less, a little less than 600 years before the time of Jesus. Ezekiel has seen something that's coming down the pike, if you will, and it's extraordinary. He's, he's taking away from certain shepherds. He's taking sheep away from them and, and really excoriating them for that. And then he seems to be handing them off to other shepherd or a, a single super shepherd with other shepherds. And what's going on here? What is Ezekiel seeing? 
He's seen exactly this. When Jesus uses this parable, he understands that, in fact, he is that shepherd. He's claiming to be that shepherd. John 10 is very clear. I'm the, I'm the shepherd. And then he's the door to the sheep. He's all, he's all these things. And eventually he becomes the lamb. The whole picture is fulfilled in Jesus himself. But Jesus is making a clear claim through this parable to be, to be the shepherd. The shepherd that's willing to leave and do everything and have the emotion when someone simply returns to Jesus. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Again, remember, he's prophesying. He's looking into the future. Here's what he sees. This is actually occurring right here in this, in this encounter in Luke 15. Whether they are aware of it or not, he is taking sheep away from the shepherds of Israel. But Ezekiel saw it coming. Here we go. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, he's not talking about the literal shepherds of Israel. He's not talking about all the people who had sheep in Israel. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the shepherds, the spiritual leaders, and you'll see it becomes very clear. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe. This is a big statement. Woe. More than woe on a horse, like slow down. This is like, this is gravity here. I mean, this is massive. Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, running after you. No, feeding themselves. Are there going to be people in religion for all time that are going to be there to feed themselves and not feed the sheep? To parse the words in a way that people would go, oh, music to my ears, and not really tell them the full story? Yes, because it comes with some persecution. It's difficult. Are there always going to be people that are in it to make money? Of course. It was during the time of Jesus as well. They were feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Remember, remember the honor crowd that we've been talking about, that we're always looking for places of honor. This is strong medicine, but remember, Jesus is also running after the religious leaders of, of Israel as well. Sometimes it just takes stronger medicine. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease you've not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back. It's quite clear to me that Jesus was claiming to inaugurate the bring back process, right? The ultimate shepherd. Nor have you sought for the lost. Here we have it. So when Jesus is telling this parable, you think he had read Ezekiel? Hey, that just happens to correspond. Of course he had. He wrote, he was inspired, the spirit of Jesus was inspiring Ezekiel before Jesus ever came and took on human flesh. We have that, we understand that. It's interchangeable at times, the spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in the book of Acts, you see that interchangeability of those two things. It's awesome. Rather than seeking the lost, with force and severity, you have dominated them. Let me just take an aside here and say this. Religion can dominate people. Have you not seen this? Religion is, can be, again, I've taught on it a few weeks ago, religion can be Satan's greatest hiding place. Do you feel dominated by religion or do you feel um, empowered and loved and cared for and challenged? It's, not, it, it's always both. Some go too far this way 
and they, the severity is too hard and it becomes domination. And then others go over here and say it's all about the love of Jesus and then they never challenge people with, well, with what Jesus challenged his followers with. This was not, when Jesus was eating with sinners and not requiring repentance, never meant that it ultimately he didn't have a desire for them to repent so they could be lost no more. Of course, it's this subtle balance and it's so hard. It's like a razor's edge, man. It's just so difficult to navigate. It's, you think that's not hard here at church at the Red Door? We want anybody who comes off the street to know that God loves them. But there's an underlying assumption that they're lost. And if they're lost, there's a reason that they're lost, that they've made bad decisions. They've gotten off the highway if they were ever on it. Most have never even been on it. And, and they're a million miles away from God's plans for their life, and they're going to suffer for that. And, and you can go too far that way, or you can go too far that way. You can dominate with severity, or you can just tickle their ears, as Paul would tell Timothy. Many are going to look to have their ears tickled. Are there churches out there that would just tickle the ears and tell everybody? And you walk away and you go, everybody's fine. We're all fine. Isn't it great that we're all fine? Messages. It's a difficult balance, isn't it? It said they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and they were scattered. Again, there's a picture. I've used this many times. Oftentimes, Gentiles are referred to as the beast of the field. That's the way I read it. I just think there's a consistency to it. And again, this is why language that Jesus used, it's not good to throw the children's bread to the dogs. He was, so said that to a Gentile one, woman, one Syrophoenician woman. And uh, he, it's just language that you're alienated so you act out of instinct. You're like a beast. You're created in the image of God, but you're acting like a beast, worshiping the stars and the trees and the, you know, whatever. So... They were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search, no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Now, this is not Jesus. This is Ezekiel, 600 years before. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. My shepherds didn't search for my flock. But rather, my shepherds fed themselves and did not feed the flock. A, just a recounting of what he just talked about. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against the shepherds. Now catch this. And I will demand my sheep from them. Those are my sheep. Whether you wear that or not, this is what Jesus is doing in his encounters as we walk through the Gospels. He's, whether he says it directly as Ezekiel had do, said it, he's demanding sheep from those who are muddying the waters and confusing people with their traditions. Ezekiel's even going to be more specific here in a minute. Notice, I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. So he's saying a number of things. I'm against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep, and I'm going to make them cease from feeding sheep. Why? Jesus cares about lost things. He cares about dominating religion. He hates it. Religion should be life-giving. Your practice of worship and challenging and, and, and make you feel naked at times. It's difficult to read the Bible if you've ever actually read it. 
It's difficult to read the Bible. And sometimes it makes me, I don't like how I feel when I read it. Well, I also don't like to go to the doctor and hear that I have, I had this cancer right here and I had, I'm going to have to have it removed. This is a number of years back. And he said, another couple of months, it could have been all over my body. I didn't like to hear that news. I'm grateful that I did. The restoration of Israel, verse 11. Now, now catch this. For thus says the Lord, behold, I myself. Now, this is huge. I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. So who's the shepherd? Well, if you go back to Ezekiel, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that God is saying, I'll be the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm the shepherd. What's Jesus claiming to be? He's claiming to be God. Are you aware that when Jesus is talking, even something as remote as a parable about a lost sheep, it's an indirect, if you know the scripture, it's more direct, but it's indirect claim to be God himself. Another claim to be divinity. As the shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. I will deliver them. This is very important. From where? A few of the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. That's not what it says. From all the places. There is no place you can go outside of the loving arms of Jesus. Well, I, I, no, I, I crossed that boundary a long time ago. Maybe a sexual issue. Maybe a, but you don't understand. I killed a man. I, 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 I've been divorced five times. I, 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 I was involved in child abuse. I, I mean, whatever it is, as I read this, God is speaking. I will deliver them from all the places. I'm so glad it says all. And it doesn't have a list of exemptions and exceptions and, and category three. And, you know, I just, no, from all the places. And notice when, they, when you get away from the Lord, you get the cloudy and gloomy days is the opposite of the sun rising and, and the beauty of the picture of the sun. S-O-N becomes the S-U-N metaphorically. I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. Now, it's very important, very important that you understand this clearly is written during the time where they are in exile. So this has twofold promise. I believe that this is a picture where God does bring back the Jewish people to their land, and this gets very confrontational theologically, and the reason I believe this is because it's happening in my lifetime, right? That's the reason I believe it. I may not, I may not have believed it had I not seen it with my own two eyes. Say, well, I was just talking about, but it, a lot of this cannot just be the recovery of the Babylonian captivity. It has to be, and it's happening today. But it's also a picture, and Jesus opens this up, and this is why I love this. He opens this up to allow us to say, but it's also me. It's not just Israel. Israel's story is my story. You hear me say that all the time. They will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest. Anybody tired? I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen the sick. I, I, I'll just tell you this verse. I can say, I will seek for Jeff. I will bring back Jeff. I will bind up his brokenhearted. 
brokenness and all those that he's broken their hearts as well, and I will strengthen him. I have to put myself in this. This has been my experience. I say, yes, that's true. That is true. Now, I'm not just not a theological issue out there that's wandering around in the ether that I kind of ascribe to. No, this is my life. This is, I'm saying this is true. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Verse 17, but as for you, my flock, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and male goats. It's some of the language you get in the book of Revelation. If you don't understand Ezekiel, you're going to have a hard time understanding Revelation. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should... Now, here it is. This is an indictment of the shepherds of Israel. Are you ready? Is it too slight of a thing that you should feed in the good pasture and that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pastures? That's what they were doing. They were taking the best parts, and they weren't feeding the sheep. They were trading it down. Or that you should drink of the clear water and that you must foul the rest with your feet. As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. So here's what he's saying. Here's the metaphor. The shepherds of Israel, those religious leaders of Israel, during the time of Ezekiel, but he's looking forward into a time. You're dominating them. You're severe. You're not even, and Jesus would come along and say, you're not even willing to lift the burdens that you're putting on the backs of these people. You hypocrites. And he says that often. Why? Because he hated them? No, because he loved them and they needed to hear that this was true. And here they are, metaphorically, and they're out there and, you know, you're in a field and you're just... And then you go into the stream and you just start kicking it up. Drink First, you drink the clear water. There you go. Just... Oh, it feels so good. Yeah. And then there's uh, my sheet back there and muddy, muddy up the water. That's what he's. So I'm a fly fisherman. And uh, we all know that if you're on foot and you're walking up a river, that the one thing you don't want to do is get right behind a guy who's just fished there. Why? Well, they muddy up the water. I mean, literally, and sometimes they do. So there's just kind of in the fish Fish will move, they'll see them, and they walk through it. Now, some people don't know this simple concept. So I have a good friend, and he works for us now uh, as the senior editor of the Lynx uh, Daily Devotional, Dennis Darville. And uh, Dennis really had never done any fishing in his life. And so a, a buddy of mine, we decided we're going to go up, we're going to go up into the mountains, and we're going to do a tent and everything, which is the stupidest thing. Do I look like a tent person? I'm just not a tent person. I mean, I'm not a tent person at all. And we did a 10, and, and have I told you this story? And the, the F-16 fighter jets came over, and we didn't know it in the middle of the night. And all I know is that we were all, three of us, elbow to elbow in this little tent. And I, I didn't remember sitting up, but we were all sitting up, and we were at the top of our, ah! And, and I looked at him, and he was, ah! And we were just screaming as loud as we could. And yet by the time we were, the, the jets were gone, we didn't know where they were jets. And we didn't know why we were screaming. It was the middle of the night. I don't like going camping. I'm not a camper. I'm a fisherman, but I, I like to go back at night and recover in a nice hotel of my choosing. So, so but it, this is so funny. So we were out fishing in this river, you know, and, I, and I'm trying to help Dennis a little bit, but I want to catch fish too, so I'm, I'm borderline. I should have just given all myself to him. and He had a good time, but... I was kind of trying to catch some fish. I said, okay, you go over here, and then you kind of throw in that hole over there and this and that. 
So I'm over there, and I'm trying to kind of sneak up on these fish, you know. And I'd given him a spot that I hadn't muddied up the waters yet. And so I'm kind of trying to get back and, you know, get into, kind of get it back in this little area. And I hear, bloop. Get it back out there, and then, oh, I had a perfect. And I hear, boop. What's going on? There's fish jumping around me. And I look. Dennis was casting about this far from my feet, as if there were going to be fish. This he just thought it was like go fish when you're a kid, and you just stick it down and pull out the magnet, and you can get anything. I don't know what it was. He was casting right at my feet where all the water had been muddied. I didn't want that for him. But he didn't have any clue. Most people don't have any clue that what they're drinking is muddied water. People are looking for God. You you don't think that's an incumbent responsibility, not only on me, but us as a church, that anyone would come in here, that they would hear the gospel in its fullness, in its severity, but without domination. The gospel is difficult to hear because it, it says that, you have, you're a sinner, and so the law can be used lawfully. But it's so difficult. But, but the beauty is a great... Me- the gospel means good news, not bad news. So when you see this, is it muddied water? It, it hurts me so profoundly when I'll see something on television and I'll see another cult or another this or another that, and I see people that are trying so hard, so hard to get to God, but all they have are false shepherds. I'm just talking about them in the Christian faith. I'm talking about globally. And it's just muddied water, it's force, it's domination, it's severity. The message of God through Jesus is a good message. He's a good shepherd. So there's much more that can be said. I just want to go to verse 23. Guys, if you can kind of go forward here. Verse 23 in this Ezekiel 34. You can go back and study this if you have any questions. Uh, We'd always be happy to answer those. It says, and then I will set over them one shepherd. Now, this can you believe this prophecy? Are you aware? I'm not just talking about, I'm not preaching out of the New Testament right now. I am preaching out of something that has been codified, was codified hundreds of years, several hundred years before the time of Jesus. There's not debate about this. This is in the Old Testament. This is in the Tanakh. I'm going to set over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself. And be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them, some tiny minority, almost so minuscule, think it might be a resurrected David. It's Jesus. It's in the line of Jesus. This is said in the New Testament. It's why it made such overt uh, attempts to say Jesus came from the line of David through, you know, Mary, through, I mean, it's just, we don't have time, but this is clearly Jesus. And he says, and then it just simply says, I, the Lord, have spoken. Ooh, I like that. There's just certain things that, I, is that I've spoken. This is what I'm going to do. Now, I've tried doing that before. I have spoken in my house, and everybody's like, Pfft. you know, my kids are like, ah, Dad, he'll change his mind. It's like when Tess lost her phone. Sorry, honey, this is going to be a great lesson for you. I have spoken. A few weeks later, well, honey, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. We'll find, you know. But, you know, when God speaks, it's done. I have spoken. I just take such comfort in that. And yet, if you don't know Jesus, please take, be terrified. This call the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Be terrified that what Jesus said about reality. If you don't know him, but today you can know him.
because he is after your soul. So I guess in closing, um, I'm going to take you to two quick other places. I knew this was going to be too much information. I knew this was too much information for one day. But I said, I can't break this out into three weeks, but I guess I could. Jeremiah 23. Uh, Jeremiah now, this is a little bit before the time of Ezekiel. Again, prophesying well in advance of Jesus. Listen to what Jeremiah says in 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. I want you to understand that what the prophets are seeing, Jesus just didn't come out anywhere and grab some metaphor out of nowhere and uh, just say, well, you know, this. I mean, this is meaningful, and it would have been meaningful for those who knew the word as well. And I hope it's staggering to you to go, oh, wow, these, these shepherd things that Jesus talks about have much more meaning to me now. I, I'm understanding what he's released me from. And yeah, I had a place in my life where I was dominated by religion, and I, I just, I don't know if I would ever come back. And, and you threw Jesus out with bad religion. Please don't do that. Please, I beg you. Do not throw out Jesus because of a bad religious experience. I may be looking at you who are watching. Maybe you're watching on television on a Sunday morning or something, and, and you're just like, I threw this out a long time ago. Please, Jesus is different, quite different than bad religion. He encountered it. He addressed it, and so did the prophets. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away. You have not attended to them. Jeremiah, same thing. This is almost 100, uh, a number of decades before Ezekiel. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds. Then I myself, again, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries I have driven them, bring them back to their pasture. And what will happen? And they're going to be fruitful and they will multiply. See, when Jesus is involved, the great shepherd, David of sorts, on the line of David, when he's involved fruit breaks out. Look, if you've been doing religion for a long time and there's no fruit, I'm saying probably the wrong shepherd. If you, if, it's just the wrong shepherd. It's not, it's not biblical Jesus. There are all kinds of Jesuses out there. Paul said the same. You're preaching a different Jesus. In Galatians, he said you're preaching a different Jesus. People take Jesus all the time. They talk, is what Jesus meant, is what he said. That's why, that's why it's so difficult to go through this. I don't want to be off. I want it to bring fruit in your life. And I want you to multiply. And I will also, and this is important, I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them. And they won't be afraid any longer. They won't be terrified, nor will any be missing. So now Jeremiah 23 gives us a picture that not only is it going to be the great shepherd, it also gives us a hint hundreds of years before, that Jesus was going to be really spending some time with the next generation of shepherds. And we call them Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and, and James and, and all these. We call them the apostles and, by extension, even those other disciples, the new shepherds of Israel, the new shepherds of Israel. And that happened. And I believe also it's happening again for Israel. We're very involved, as you know, on December 4th. You will not want to miss Dr. Ares Sareff. going to be here on December 4th. He's been with us before. I believe Ares is a new shepherd of Israel, one of the key ones. Hundreds of, we were over 200 million views now. That's why I was in Budapest recently. He'll be here to speak and talk, and we'll either do an interview deal or I'll just let him speak. What's ever going to happen but new shepherds of Israel, and fruitfulness is breaking out, and it's multiplying. Jeremiah had it right. 
So how did they get the optics for this? What, what's, now, here's the question. What's going to make the new shepherd, how do we know that that won't be muddied water? Because a lot of Jewish people think that Jesus muddied the waters that, was, that were clean. So it's the opposite. Was Jesus muddying the waters or was he clearing the waters? Jesus not only claimed to clear the water, he claimed to be the water. Okay, it was even wilder. So how, how did these new shepherds emerge? What, was, what gives us the, the clarity to know that we can trust now what we call the New Testament? What Jesus passed off to the new shepherds. We knew there was going to be a new shepherd and he was going to be God and that he was going to then turn and pass off this excellent shepherding, not muddying the waters or not trampling down the pastures. He was going to be caring for him and tending them and making sure no one is missing. How is that going to, how we know that your teaching is right? Because Jeremiah, a few chapters later, had seen it. And this is where we'll close this morning. Behold, days are coming, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new deal. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this was only made possible by the great shepherd becoming, paradoxically, the lamb. Remember when Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood? That's what we're about to do here is take communion. That's what this is about. We've been inaugurated into a new kingdom, but it took blood of the shepherd who became the lamb. Wow. Who could have made that story up? Nobody. That was the plan before it ever began. Do you understand the gravity of that? It's profound. It's not going to be like the covenant when I, which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, that's the Mosaic covenant. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, read sheep. Every detail of the law is written on my heart. I'm... And, and, and I'm, when I say that, I don't mean I understand everything, but the law, when I read it, it's already on my heart. But see, I don't, I don't do it to try to be right with God. I do it because it reveals Jesus. The law is a revelation of Jesus. And now it's on my heart. But I don't sit there and go, oh, my gosh, I accidentally did this. I deserve a stoning. Or, oh, my God. This, and that's what secular people don't understand about the Bible. See, it talks about slavery. talks about stoning people. Who can live under this kind of ridiculous... They don't understand the story, do they? The story, if it didn't have Jeremiah 31 with a new deal, a new covenant, then we're right back to the old, difficult, challenging, how do we figure this law out and how do we apply it? And Jesus is saying, I'm upending it all through the covenant of my blood. And that's, my friends, what we call communion. Not just a religious technicality. You can enter this as a concept with passion. I'm taking this because I was lost and now I'm found. And it took blood. And now I can be fruitful and multiply because I'm eating his word, which is his flesh, which is this. It's his word. I, I, wow, wow. Now we're talking. Now we're not talking about religiosity. We're talking about life-giving Jesus. 
You lost, you can be found. Were you lost? Well, now you can take communion because you have been found, and now we're going to remember him in that. Pastor Paul.